Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Two readings this morning from Mark's Gospel. The first can be found on page 1003 in the Church Bibles. That's reading Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, page 1003. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And the second reading is on page 1012, reading Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, page 1012. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we stand, let's pray together. I will follow him, the one who walked the darkest path for me and placed my feet where his have trod the road to Calvary. Heavenly Father, as we consider uh, these texts from Mark's Gospel and think about Jesus, the Son of Man, uh, we pray that you would encourage us to follow him and him alone. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, please do sit down, and um, if you could have your Bibles at hand, uh, perhaps the first of our, our readings this morning, that's from uh, Mark chapter 2, you find that on page 1003, uh, ready to look at, we'll be looking at that in just a moment. There's also uh, handouts amongst the pay, pay, pieces of paper you were given on the way in, uh, that looks like this, you can use that to, for following along or making some notes if you like, uh, so to make use of that if you want to. Now, I wonder what question, what comes to mind when I say the word victory to you. I guess if, you were, if I was to ask that back in 1944, 70 years ago, there would have been only one kind of victory on people's minds. So the kind of victory encouraged by that, that, that war poster that I've printed out on the, on, the, on the handout, the first side of the handout, a victory which comes. The nation was assured at the time. Uh, through their courage and their cheerfulness and their resolution. So if you, to look back in time, you might think about one kind of victory or to look at different parts of the world today, you might think about different kinds of victory. If you were to ask people in other parts of the world today, you might get answers that, with a similar focus on, on war and, and violence and military victory. So think about the ISIS fighter in Iraq for example, dreaming of victory through violent jihad as he paints an Arabic N on his Christian neighbor's house, uh, N for Nazrani or Christian, uh, marking that house out for persecution. Uh, I guess in the, in the prosperous West where, where we live, and uh, Phil was a, a prime example of all of that, uh, I guess our experience of the emotions of victory and defeat are going to be rather more muted and indirect. It might be that moment late, at, late in the evening, uh, very late perhaps, uh, when the last child finally, finally, well at least we hope, falls asleep. Uh, it might be that feeling uh, some days of getting to the end of a to-do list, or that feeling of triumph that you've taken on the day and you've won, yes, I got to the end of it. Or for many of us, perhaps all of us from from time to time, that feeling of victory will come indirectly uh, through a proxy, through watching sport, for example. Uh, Think of those scenes in Berlin recently when the triumphant German football team returned to jubilant fans or cheering spectators at the Commonwealth Games or you can pick your favourite sporting moment, that euphoria of victory in sports. I'm going to make a a pretty big and outrageous claim this morning. I'm going to to claim that uh, whenever we experience that feeling of victorious euphoria, uh, what what our hearts are really yearning for is a much greater and more glorious victory than that. Our hearts are yearning for nothing less than a victory in the whole of life, uh, the whole of life, and over death and evil forever. Those experiences of victory that we have in this life are but a pale shadow of the real thing to come. I guess all of us aspire to some kind of victory. Uh, And I could ask you this morning, uh, what what kind of victory are you pushing for? What kind of success are you looking for in life? What kind of victories do you want to be a part of? Well, I want you to encourage you this morning to be a part of this one and to find this victory through Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, we're in a short series this summer looking at Jesus the Son. Last week we were thinking about uh, Jesus the Son of the Father. 
And uh, this week, uh, you'll have noticed we're thinking about Jesus, the Son of Man. But who is this Son of Man? In John's Gospel, some people respond to Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, uh, saying just that. Who is this Son of Man? Son of Man? We've never heard of this Son of Man. And that's the question we're going to be answering this morning. Uh, looking at this week, uh, this week as we did last week at the Gospel of Mark. And I hope we're going to discover or be reminded of uh, what our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq need to be reminded of uh, urgently, daily. That in Jesus, the Son of Man, we can find complete victory over sin and death and evil, over everything that is bad, and that we can find that through him and through his suffering, uh, death and resurrection. We're going to look at that in three stages, three parts this morning. First, we're going to look at that, that title that Jesus gives himself, uh, the Son of Man. We've had that title in both the passages we had this morning. Uh, and I hope we're going to find that we can find the victory in him, winning the victory for us. Uh, what kind of victory are we talking about? Well, that's part two, a victory over sin and death. And uh, how is it won? Well, that's part three. It's won through his suffering, death and resurrection. So this is our aim this morning, for us all to find victory through Jesus, uh, the Son of Man, winning the victory for us, a victory over sin and death, through his suffering, death, and resurrection. So let's begin on that then. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? That's the first point, our first point this morning. It is, I'm going to claim, so that we might find victory in him, the Son of Man, winning the victory for us. Find victory in Jesus, the Son of Man, winning the victory for us. So please do turn to the first of our readings from Mark's Gospel. Uh, That's Mark chapter 2, and uh, you'll find that title there in verse 10. Jesus says this, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Uh, The first thing I hope you can see here is that Jesus is using that title, Son of Man, to talk about himself. And in Mark's Gospel, this is the very first time that he does that. And uh, perhaps slightly frustratingly, he doesn't explain why he's doing that. It's all, at first reading, a bit baffling and enigmatic. Uh, We get to this point in the gospel and uh, we flick back thinking, well, who is this son of man? Where did we come across this character before? It's a bit like that moment when you're reading a Russian novel, uh, which I'm sure all of you do from time to time, and uh, your concentration drifts for just a moment and you think, well, who is this? Have I come across this character before? You know, I know that Anna is married to Karenin and she's in love with Vronsky and Anna's brother is Oblonsky who's married to Dolly who's the eldest sister of Kitty who's fancied by both Lenin and Vronsky but who is this? Who is this Alexander and this Sergei that suddenly appeared on these pages? Where did they come from? Who is this son of man? Where did he come from? It's a question that's excited Bible scholars for decades Does it just mean that Jesus is human, son of man? Or is the son of some particular person, he's human, the son of a man? Does it mean he's a prophet, like the prophet Ezekiel? 
uh, who was often called the, the son of man? Is it just a, a slightly fancy way of saying I or me? Uh, but actually the most likely answer by far is to be found in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, the Bible book of Daniel. And I've printed out some of the relevant verses on, on the handout for you. Verse 13 of Daniel 7, for example, reads like this. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now how can we be sure that this this is the the verse that Jesus wants us to think about as he uses that title? Uh, Well, later on in Mark's Gospel, uh, when Jesus Another occasion on which Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he says this. This is from a passage we're going to be looking at in a few weeks' time. I've also printed it on your handout. It's down there at the bottom of the first page. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Jesus says, at his trial, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. If you like a pretty almost direct quote from Daniel 7, which makes it pretty clear, I think, that Jesus wants us to think about Daniel 7 and the vision there every time he calls himself the Son of Man. But I hope you can also see there uh, with those quotes that there's a bit of a mismatch. It doesn't quite work. Daniel 7 talks about uh, one like a Son of Man, uh, while Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. What is going on there? Well, what's going on there is actually really quite exciting. But to see why it's so exciting, you need to let me begin by telling you a little bit more about Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel is set over 500 years before the birth of Jesus, at a time when the people of God were suffering in exile. They're deeply oppressed, and they seem to have very little hope. And the prophet Daniel is given a vision in that desperate situation. The vision shows very graphically why it is that the people are suffering so greatly and indeed will continue to do so for some time. In the vision, huge, grotesque beasts emerge from the underworld and they fight with one another for supremacy. It's explained to Daniel a little later that these beasts represent the kingdoms of the world tearing one another apart and waging war against the people of God. It's a vibrant and violent image of what life is like for the people of God. It's it's an image, I think, that the the Christians in Iraq and in Mosul would readily be able to identify with uh, today. But us too, I think, as we go through the trials of life, I don't know about you, this is certainly something I can identify with. It certainly feels like that, like being caught up in some sort of war much of the time. But thankfully, the vision in Daniel 7 doesn't stop there. What Daniel's shown next is a vision of heaven. And in heaven, there is a calm determination to bring justice and judgment and victory against those beasts. And the vision ends with this one like a son of man coming in victory with divine power and authority. Verse 13, and let me read on. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Now, who is this one like a son of man in Daniel 7? Well, if you just had Daniel 7 in front of you, and uh, you looked at the, at the end of the, of the chapter, the explanation of the vision given to Daniel, and I've also print, printed this on the, on the handout, it goes like this, Daniel 7, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High, that is, the people of God, Daniel's people. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Now, Daniel 7 ends with Daniel telling us he felt deeply troubled by all that he'd seen and heard. Why? Because the vision shows him that the persecution and suffering of his people is actually going to get worse, not better, as he was hoping. And indeed, that's going to last for hundreds and hundreds of years. No wonder, as he tells us, his face went pale as he heard it. But the vision also showed him that in the end, there would be hope. What is shown and told is that in the end, all the warring, violent, oppressive kingdoms of the world will be decisively and finally defeated and destroyed. <coughs> and God's people will be part of a kingdom that will last forever. And by the end of the book of Daniel, we're told that even the people of God who had died under the oppression are, uh, are going to be a part of that. You know, this is going to be a comprehensive victory in every possible way, forever, even over death itself. But, but despite all that, there is a problem. You see, by the time we finish, uh, we finish reading the first part of the Bible, uh, what we call the Old Testament, we know there is a big problem with that vision. The problem is the people of God. You see, there's a reason why they're in exile at the time of Daniel. And it's because of their weakness and their sin their faithlessness to their God, their ongoing rebellion against the creator of the universe and the source of life. And the further problem is that we can identify with that. We can identify with that weakness and sin. We were confessing it earlier in our meeting. It describes us too. And it leaves us despairing of ever being part of any sort of victory. So then, enter Jesus. Enter Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. So you see what's happened as he does that. I suppose this is one of the, the big surprises at the heart of history. This is the, the loving genius of our God, if you like. That our God has looked at our weakness and our sin and seen that there's pretty, pretty much no hope of victory there. But instead of giving up on us in despair, he has remembered his promises and said, I'm coming to fix that and fix it personally. In Jesus, he becomes the son of man. He takes on all the, the hopes and expectations of the people of God. He becomes, if you like, the victorious people of God, embodied in one person, the victory of God's people in Daniel is pictured like, the, like one, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, Jesus is that figure. He is the Son of Man. If you were accused of something serious in medieval times and uh, you were very unfortunately sentenced to a trial by combat, 
uh, one of the things you could do is, would be to sign up a knight to be your champion. And uh, he would then fight your cause. Uh, you'd have a very personal stake in that fight, of course. Be very interested in the outcome. In fact, your very life would depend upon the outcome of that fight. But if your champion won, then it was like you won. His victory would be your victory because he's your champion. And it's a little like that for us too, facing the trials of life and death today. Jesus comes and uh, we don't ask him, he offers himself to be our champion. That's what he came to do. And because he is the son of man, uh, his victory is guaranteed. We just have to say yes and follow him and trust him and cling to him and his victory will be our victory. And I just need to ask you this morning, if you haven't done that yet, why not? And uh, I need to ask you, if you have, why would you ever think of letting go? But what kind of victory are we talking about here? You might have thought from all this imagery of, and talk of battles and wars and trials by combat and champions that we must be talking about some kind of uh, political or, or military victory. And uh, the people of Jesus' day may well have been thinking in those kinds of terms too. They do seem to have been hoping for, uh, for a military leader like those that they have had in the past, like King David, for example, you know, charging through their enemies or in a flurry of severed heads and foreskins. But this is the second big surprise coming to us this morning. This is a very, very different kind of victory. The victory Jesus came to bring was much greater than that, in fact. It was nothing less than a victory over death and sin. And this takes us back to our reading from Mark chapter 2. We don't have time this morning to go into all the detail of this story, but we do have time to grasp this one point, that the victory Jesus came to bring as the Son of Man was nothing less than a victory over death and sin. Now, even at this very early stage in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already demonstrated his authority over the forces of death and evil. He's driven out evil spirits uh, who wanted people to die. He's restored life to people at death's door. And he's cleansed people who look like, if you like, they're the living dead. And uh, you can tell that the people who have gathered at this house in Mark chapter 2 are expecting more of the same, and they're desperate to be a part of it because it's so amazing. Uh, Not least these friends who come carrying a a, a paralytic, uh, stretched out on a pallet like a a dead man. And uh, they're so desperate to be a part of it, in fact, that they go up onto the flat roof and they dig their way through uh, to get to Jesus. Now, as they do that, you can imagine what they're hoping for and expecting as they lower their friend in front of Jesus. Uh, But look with me at what they get when they do that. Verse five, uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that really does concentrate on our minds on who Jesus is and uh, what he came to do. 
And uh, you can see in the passage that it upsets the teachers of the law sitting there who correctly think to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? Healing, they're kind of happy about. Although they should have noticed, of course, that the kinds of healing that that Jesus were doing were were extraordinary, exceptional. Uh, Something that no one has ever done before or since. Uh, But forgiving sins? They know instinctively that that's a job for God alone. Uh, But Jesus wants to show us both who he is and the kind of authority that he's come to bring, and that those two things are very intimately connected. He has come to defeat the power of death and evil, and he has come to defeat the power of sin, which lies behind all of that. And he's become with divine authority to do both those things. So he asks them a question, verse 9. Which is easier, he asks. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And uh, the answer to that, just in case you're wondering, uh, is that they are both equally impossible. None of us can do any of those things. They're equally impossible apart from the power of God. Only God can forgive. Only God can do the kind of life-restoring miracles that Jesus has been doing. Do the one, and you can do the other. And so Jesus says, verse 10, but you, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all and they were, this amazed everyone. They praised, and notice who they praise. They praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, I suppose in many ways, um, it has always been perhaps too easy for the people of God to, to pray to him and to ask things like, you know, please restore our lives, please give us life. Please simply destroy our enemies and uh, then everything will be fine. But that is to forget that we all, what we all need to come to terms with in the end. That, and that is that we are, in many ways, we all have to accept this in the end, don't we? That we are our own worst enemies. This is especially so, of course, in our relationship with God. Our rebellion against him, our sin, is a, is a rebellion against, it's against the very source of life. And so naturally puts us at risk of death. That sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be forgiven before the life can be restored. And again, I just need to ask you, if you haven't acknowledged that yet, Why not? And I do need to ask you if you have, if you have acknowledged it as we were acknowledging this earlier this morning, are you continuing to acknowledge it? Will you continue to acknowledge it? But is this forgiveness of sins something that Jesus can simply do with a word? I suppose if we just had this passage in front of us, uh, we might think that. Uh, but read on in Mark's Gospel and uh, we find there's rather more to it than just a word. How does Jesus, the Son of Man, win his victory for us 
over death and sin. Well, one final thing to say this morning, and uh, that is that this is a victory won through his suffering, death, and resurrection. It's a victory won through his suffering, death, and resurrection. So turn with me uh, very briefly uh, to Mark chapter 8 and uh, verses 31 uh, to 38, page 1012 in your Bibles. And uh, remember again what the big problem facing us is in the world. Uh, The problem for God's people is that they need rescuing uh, from oppression and death at the hands of their enemies, hands of their enemies. Uh, Those enemies in, in many ways need to be destroyed. But the further problem is that God's people are so compromised, so caught up in that rebellion against God, uh, so on side with their enemies, really, uh, so entwined in all of that, that something needs to be done to disentangle them. It's a very terrible mess. So how is Jesus, the Son of Man, going to bring about a victory for God's people given that mess? Well, verse 31 of chapter 8. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This then is the drastic solution of God. This is what the Son of Man came to do. Basically, the plan is for Jesus, as the Son of Man, to take all of that upon himself, all of it, all the suffering, all the death, all the culpability, all the sober fact that uh, that God's people are in many ways morally responsible for their miserable condition, all of that sin, all of that guilt, take it upon himself in his death, and then after three days, he can rise in victory. And uh, I need to ask you this morning, one last time, if you haven't yet become a part of that victory, the victory of the Son of Man, why not? And again, let me ask you, if you have, why would you ever think of letting go? Or to put it another another way, we don't need uh, war posters today. Uh, saying uh, that our courage, our cheerfulness, our resolution will bring us victory, as uh, we needed 70 years ago. Uh, We need new posters saying something like this. His courage, his love for us, his resolution will bring us victory. As we finish this morning, let me just uh, take you back to that that scene in Mark chapter 2 we were looking at earlier. As that group of men uh, bring their friends on the mat. And uh, think with me uh, for a moment about their hopes and aspirations and expectations uh, as they were doing that. I suppose we could say that they were hoping for something extraordinary, something beyond their wildest dreams. But what that story tells us is that what they were hoping for, although they were expressing great faith, Commendable faith as they were hoping for it. What they were hoping for was too small. Their aspirations were too low. So think about uh, your hopes and 
aspirations in life? What are you wanting success in? Where are you wanting victory? What kinds of victories do you want to be a part of? Let me ask you again, are your dreams in life too small? You might like to think about this next time you uh, cry out in triumphant joy. Um, It might be because you got the children to bed, finally. It might be because you got to the end of your to-do list. It might be some sporting event where you cry out with people around you, sort of pumping the air in joy. We might have to wait quite a long time another one of those but eventually it will come but use that moment that moment of euphoria that moment of sporting euphoria as a trigger use that victory to think about this victory because this is what our gracious God wants for all of us to find this morning Uh, to find in Jesus the son of man a victory over nothing less than death and sin A victory won for us through his suffering, death, and resurrection. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we do think of the words of the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 as he comes to the end of that chapter and cries out with great thanks. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we do want to echo those words we pray this morning, Father, uh, but just very slightly differently as we pray with thanks to you this morning. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, the Son of Man. Amen.